1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman shall plow in hope, and the thresher shall thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. 
they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we are an we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. Here ends the reading. Heavenly Father, we do want to glorify your name, but we are conscious of our weakness, and so we ask for your help now. For me, as I speak for all of us, as we listen to your word, speak powerfully to us and change us, we ask, and for his name's sake. Amen. Please you take a seat. As uh, Ken said, my name is Ramsey Adcock. It's great to be with you again this morning, a great privilege uh, to meet together like this and look at God's word. And uh, as Ken said, we're going to be continuing our preaching series through the book of 1 Corinthians, so why not uh, pick up a Bible and turn back to page 956 so we can look at that together. Uh, for those who don't know me, just a, a quick word of introduction. I'm uh, half Jordanian, half English, uh, moved to Newcastle to study a long time ago, um, and now married, got three kids, uh, on the staff of Jesmond Parish Church for many years, uh, was involved with international student work, uh, and now more generally involved in the life of JPC. Uh, just come back from three months sabbatical leave, so if I'm looking slightly more tan than normal, uh, you can blame not my Jordanian heritage, but the Singaporean son. Uh, we were able to spend three months in the church that Renita Barber grew up in, actually, uh, St. John, St. Margaret's, uh, a wonderful Anglican church in Singapore, so we come back uh, full of uh, just thankfulness for God's blessing to us over that time. So anyway, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and just in case you've just joined us, and a reminder for all of us, let me introduce you to the main characters uh, that we find here. First of all, of course, we have the Apostle Paul. He's the one who wrote the letter 2,000 years ago. He's writing to the church that he helped to start in the Greek city of Corinth. Some of the church members had been Jews before they became Christians, and they used to be part of the local synagogue. And some of the members of the church hadn't been Jews, and they'd probably had at least some involvement in one of the local pagan temples. So the church itself was quite mixed, but it really wasn't a very mature church, and they faced a whole stack of issues, and one of the reasons Paul is writing this letter is to help sort out some of the mess that they're in. So the letter, as we read it, is addressed to them, but what he has to say isn't just for them, it's also for us, because it's part of God's written word. And what he has to say to us in these verses of chapter 9 that we're looking at today, help us when we have to make right decisions. As I'll explain in a minute, the Corinthian Christians were getting all worked up about food. And the big question that they were asking was, what am I allowed to do? Now, their specific issue may not be the exact same one we face, but for all Christians facing decisions, big or small, the question that they asked is a familiar one, especially perhaps if you're new to the Christian life. What am I allowed to do? It's not a bad question to ask. If we are Christians, then Jesus is our Lord, and we want to know what pleases him. We want to live according to his word. But the Corinthian Christians should have been taking more than just that question into account when they were deciding what to do. And part of their lack of maturity was an inability to see what was missing from their decision-making. 
And there were two really important issues. The first was that they were self-absorbed. They were really only concerned about themselves, about their own well-being, about what was good for me, instead of looking out for the best interests of others. They lacked love in their decision-making. And secondly, they'd lost sight of one of the, the, their main purpose of their lives as believers should have been to make Jesus known to everyone. So not only did they lack love, they had forgotten their mission, and that wasn't playing a part in their decision-making in the way that it should. Chapter 9 comes in a section in 1 Corinthians that goes from chapter 8 to chapter 10. We need to see it as a whole, and we need to understand the context. So let's just back up a bit and just glance up to chapter 8, verse 1, where this section begins. And this is what Paul says. Now, concerning the food offered to idols. So you need to understand a bit about what was going on. In Corinth at that time, there were pagan temples that worshipped idols and gods. Gods with a little g, because they're not really gods. Now, during the worship, animals were sacrificed, and the meat from the animals was used um, in the pagan rituals, and then served in the temple dining room, at business and social functions, and exactly that same meat that was sacrificed was also sold in the meat market. And so the big debate that Corinth Parish Church faced was, are Christians allowed to eat that meat? Some said, yes, you can. Others said, no, you can't. And that led to conflict. Leaves it with that question, what am I allowed to do? Right back at the beginning of the Bible, when God created Adam and Eve, he placed them in the Garden of Eden. And they were told, this is Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So there's Adam and Eve, and they're in this wonderful, huge garden. There was one clear no-go area, just one tree with forbidden fruit, but a whole garden of trees that were allowed. And so it has always been. Jesus is Lord. That means he gets to decide what is good and evil. He draws the line between what is allowed and what is not allowed. And he alone is worthy of our worship. We cannot, we must not bow the knee to anyone or anything else. He, Jesus, is Lord and him alone. And in those areas where things are forbidden, there is no decision to make. We are not to step outside of what this passage calls the law of God. God is good. His ways are good. So we can trust him that when something is in that forbidden area, it is not just wrong. It's also not for our good. But for Christians, there's also a wonderful freedom. It's not that we go through life only doing what God has specifically said we are allowed to do. He's spoken to us. He's given us in his word a clear idea of what is wrong. But beyond that, we have a whole garden of freedom in which to live. Freedom over what we eat, what we drink, what we watch, what we wear, what we read, what we study, what we listen to. Freedom over how we spend our time, what work we do, how we use our money, how we spend our holidays, what we do when we retire. 
We've got huge freedoms to do what we want to do, to go where we want to go and to live where we want to live. And the big issue in chapters 8 to 10 is about food, but it's really about how a Christian makes decisions in those areas where there is freedom. So are the Corinthian Christians allowed to eat the food offered to idols? Is it allowed? Is that the no-go area, or is it an area of freedom? Well, we saw part of Paul's answer last time in chapter 8. If you just glance up to verses 4 to 6, he's arguing that it is allowed. This is an area of freedom for Christians. Why? Because idols are not real. So the cow that was sacrificed to make believe God Aphrodite, that cow doesn't belong to Aphrodite. It belongs to God. Food is simply food. It's a gift from God. And Jesus himself declared all foods are fine to eat. There is a no-go area. We'll see that in chapter 10. And that is for a Christian to enter the temple and to participate, to take part in the worship to Aphrodite. That's a different issue. Idols, of course, are not real, but worshipping them is idolatry, and that is real. And not only is it real, it's dangerous. Jesus is Lord. He alone is to be worshipped. But food is in a different category. Food, well, all food comes from God, and so a Christian is free to eat and enjoy it. So, the yes, you were right, were party, a party were right after all, well, on one level, yes, but they were not behaving rightly. In fact, they were sinning. They did have a right to eat the food, but what they lacked was love for other believers and a concern for what was best for them. You'll remember, if you were here when we looked at chapter 8, that there were some members of that church in Corinth, Paul describes them as having weaker consciences, who had previously, before they were Christians, worshipped in that temple. And so they didn't believe that it was right to eat food from that temple. And so Paul says, for them, if they were to eat the meat, when their conscience told them that it was wrong, it would be spiritually dangerous for them. So the yes, you party could insist that they were free, but they used that knowledge to puff themselves up instead of building up their weaker brothers and sisters in love. A Christian acting in love in that situation, what would they do? Well, they would choose to give up their rights, to give up their freedom for the sake of love, of lovingly building up their Christian brother or sister. So that's where we've got to. Chapter 9 just continues that same theme. Paul continues with it, but now he applies the principles to Christians giving up their freedom, not just for those within the church, but particularly for those outside the church, for those still in that synagogue, for those still in the temple. And in the first half of chapter 9, Paul takes himself as an example. He takes an area of his life where he has a right, and he shows us how he gives it up in order to reach those who don't know Jesus. So in chapter 8, the missing aspect of their decision-making was to ask what is most loving in the church family? That's what they should have done, and they didn't. In chapter 9, what's missing from their decision-making was to ask, how can my decision help as many people as possible 
to hear the good news about Jesus. The first half of chapter 9, it's quite a long chapter, let me summarize it. He shows them, in no, leaving no space for doubt, that he has freedom, he has the right to f- be supported financially as a minister of the gospel. And in those verses, he piles on the evidence. There can be no doubt. He reminds them that he is an apostle. He points out that it's common practice in other professions to be paid for your work. He uses the example of a soldier and a farmer and a shepherd. He takes them to the scriptures, to the Old Testament. And he shows them again and again that this is the truth, this is the right thing. And he saves his biggest and most powerful argument to verse 14. In fact, this alone would have just settled the matter. Jesus himself taught this. Look at verse 14. In the same way, the Lord Jesus commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So Paul has shown us that he has the right to be supported financially. But the next verse is key to understanding what he's saying to us. He explains that he chose to give up that right when he was in Corinth. When he was trying to decide what to do, he didn't just simply ask what is allowed. He made his decision based on what would allow as many people as possible to hear the gospel without putting any obstacles in their way. So he viewed that issue not as a right to claim, but as a freedom. When he was with them in Corinth, he went to preach the good news about Jesus. He came to declare that Jesus died on a cross to pay the debts of sinners who had no way of getting themselves out of debt. He came proclaiming the forgiveness and new life that was the free gift that Jesus brought them at Jesus' own expense. That was what God had called Paul to do. He had no other choice. He couldn't help himself but to preach. But when he did, he wanted to bring that gospel to them free of charge. He decided to use his freedom to not claim what was his right, but instead to give up that right for the sake of the gospel. Look at verse 15. I've made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my grounds for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no grounds for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this, for if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Paul wanted the Corinthians to grow up in their faith, to make decisions not just based on the question, what am I allowed to do, but instead to make, quest- to make decisions that asked first, what is most loving, and second, what will help bring the good news of Jesus to as many people as possible. And the answer to both of those questions will almost certainly mean self-sacrifice. It will mean willingly giving up our freedom for the sake of others. It will mean using our freedoms, not for our own benefit, but for the good of others. We've been reminded recently of these words, haven't we? When you go home, tell them of us and say, for your tomorrow, we gave our today. Those well-known and moving words have been repeated as we remember the sacrificial giving of the armed forces 75 years ago during the D-Day campaign, 
that marked the beginning of the end of the Second World War. We remember those, don't we, who gave up so much, who lost their own lives to serve and protect the freedoms of others. They'd been willing to give up everything. Why? For others and for their tomorrow. The sacrifice of today was made to secure for others a tomorrow that is different and better than today. And it is exactly that same sacrificial attitude that Jesus made on the cross 2,000 years ago when he, for our tomorrow, gave his today. And it is the same spirit of sacrifice that Paul wants us to demonstrate in order to reach a whole world that needs to hear of Jesus. So that's the first half of chapter 9. That's his point. And in verses 19 to 23, he gets, we get to the heart of what Paul is saying. He wants everyone to hear and respond to the gospel. And he does whatever it takes to make that as easy as possible for them. He removes anything that will get in the way, even if it means giving up his rights. Look at verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. So when he's with his Jewish friends, he gives up his right to bacon butties, and he follows their food laws and even their elaborate washing rituals. Actually, we see an example of him doing that in Acts 21, verse 26, where he he submitted himself to things that were unnecessary. Why? So that they're not put off from hearing about Jesus. Look at verse 20, where he talks about those in the synagogue. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. And the same principle is true when he's meeting his friends in the temple dining rooms. He's very careful not to cross the line into the no-go area of taking part in participating in idol worship. But in neutral areas, he uses his freedom to become like those he's trying to reach, to make it as easy as possible for them to hear the gospel. Verse 21. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Paul knew that in every culture there are elements that a Christian cannot take part in, but where there are areas where a Christian is free, he chooses whatever was best for getting the message out, even if it came at personal cost to him. Verse 22, to the weak I became weak that I may win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. So that's the principle. You see it also in verse 12, if you just look back up to that. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right but we endure, sacrificially, anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Notice he says he endures anything. In other words, there's not a right that he has that he is not willing to give up for the sake of others and for the sake of the gospel. It doesn't mean he will do anything or say anything. He's not going to change the gospel just to try and win people. He's not going to remove the offense of it but he will endure everything. We do have freedoms in God's kingdom. And as we grow more and more like the king that we serve, we learn to exercise those freedoms according to the values of our kingdom. 
a kingdom of love, a kingdom of self-sacrifice. And the more and more we consider the implications for our own lives of the call of our king to make disciples of all people everywhere, the more and more we will put our energies into discerning what is best for advancing God's kingdom, whatever the cost. I've been trying to think of a couple of examples of that, and um, no doubt you'll have seen uh, the news from, our news from the newsletter that Alan Wilde uh, died a, year, a week ago. I don't know how many of you know Alan and Joyce. I cannot think of a better example excuse me, <laughs> of someone who has given his life for others to hear of Jesus than the example of Alan Wilde, who knew no retirement, who had no official role, but who gave lovingly and sacrificially to enable so many to get to know him. And there are men and women all around the globe today who are thanking God, not just that they know their father in heaven, but for the man who introduced them to that father, Alan Wilde. Isn't that a wonderful example to have in front of us? And um, many of you know, of course, people like Robin and Alice Whaley who have given up so much uh, to take the good news to those who don't know it, who I'm sure would rather uh, live in the wonderful city of Newcastle, close to their friends and their family, but who have made decisions, used their freedoms for the sake of the gospel. And as I look around, I'm reminded of the, the many close friends that I love and miss, who I don't see as often now, who made that decision to come and help start a church here, who gave up so much uh, to do that. Those are the examples that are laid before us by this passage. But what decisions does this principle impact for you? Maybe it's your career plans, your use of time, your attitude to money, whether or not you move house, uh, where you live, what you will buy. We've got many freedoms in all of those areas, but will you make decisions, whatever it costs you, on what will help to advance the gospel? This passage calls on each one of us this morning to rearrange our lives to help as many people as possible to hear about Jesus. It doesn't call on us to set aside the commands of God, to seek to remove the offense of the message, but it does mean we use our freedoms to remove all obstacles to others hearing about Jesus. And I think this principle means that we need to be the ones who take the cost of building bridges to those who've yet to hear of Jesus. Instead of staying in the relative comfort of our church family, our church community, expecting others to come to us and to become like us, we will go and willingly bear the cost of adapting to others, to serve them, to put ourselves out for those who do not yet know Christ so they can experience his love through us. I think this calls on us to be intentional and deliberate in taking the gospel to those who aren't yet looking for it. As I said, I had a, a sabbatical recently, and one of the, the best books that I read uh, was a new book that came out called uh, Evangelism as Exiles uh, by a guy called Elliot Clark. He has spent most of his life living and working in a Muslim country, and then he came back to America, and he looked at the church, and he just makes some very interesting observations of the church that I think also fit our sitting, uh, situation as well, as well as taking us through 1 Peter. It's a great book. And uh, he says that very often we are passive. We wait for opportunities to come to us before we speak of Jesus. 
rather than being deliberate in going out. And he says, perhaps in the past we could get by with such a hands-off approach when we could count on a reasonable percentage of the population having a positive view of the church. But depending entirely on others to express interest in our gospel is less tenable as society becomes increasingly disillusioned by our faith and we become an excluded minority. If we continue the pattern of waiting for the perfect opportunities, they may never come. And our fate will be that of the weary farmer who observes the wind but doesn't sow, who considers the clouds and because the weather's not quite right, never reaps. Farmers like that have empty barns in winter. We too, if we're, trying, if we're too busy trying to discern the times, if we're raising a finger to the wind to see if someone is ready to hear and respond to the gospel, we'll likely never see a harvest of souls. We'll never open our mouths to speak because we're waiting for a better day. But better days do not seem to be on the horizon. I think he's right. We need to be intentional and deliberate in taking the gospel to those who don't yet know it and are not yet looking for it. Well, we need to finish. And as Paul finishes this passage, he calls on us to do what will not be easy. It requires hard work and self-discipline. And that's why he picks up in the closing verses the image of an athlete running a race. You see that in verses 24 to 26. Athletes good ones at least, are focused, not distracted. They endure the painful sacrifices required to run a race. They're single-minded and they have their eyes on the prize. What is the prize? Well, we too are to run for that same prize, the prize of meeting Jesus on the final day and to hear him welcome us in and say, well done, good and faithful servant. We're to keep an eternal perspective knowing that one day we will see him again as we use our freedoms to make decisions in this race of life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus and for all he gave up to make it possible for us to know you as our Heavenly Father. Change us by your Spirit. Make us more like him. Give us a love for one another and for those who don't yet know you. Give us a willingness to give up all that we have, all our rights and our freedoms, whatever it takes to make you known to those around us. Father, work in us by your spirit. Show us where this truth needs to change the way we decide, uh, the way we um, use our freedoms. And Father, we thank you uh, as we finish together for the life of Alan Wilde, a life... Uh, lived for your glory and for your honor. We pray that by your spirit, uh, you would enable us uh, to live lives that honor you too. We ask that in Jesus' name.